Hi everyone, I'm Sky Ross and this is Motherness, a podcast dedicated to sharing mindful and empowering interviews with mothers and experts. Together, we're shining a light on the realness of raising babies and life postpartum, from the first moments to the months following and the years beyond. Motherness serves to hold space for mothers in all their glory, to inform you, to include you, to empower you and to connect you. And despite our different experiences, opinions and approaches, as mothers who love, we are grounded in this together. In today's episode of Motherness, I speak with the beautiful and hilarious Nick Winslade, who some of you may follow on Instagram and be more familiar with as Virgin Mum. Nick is a mother of two, and today we chat through both of her fourth trimester experiences, including all the lessons she's learned along the way, and the wisdom that comes with being a second-time mum. Our conversation is as funny as it is real about the trials and tribulations of having young kids. We cover Nick's reflux experience with San Marlo, her thoughts about society's obsession with the sleep expectations of newborns, the transition from one to two, her contrasting feeding journeys and her trying physical recovery with a rectal prolapse, which she recounts with the complete honesty and hilarity that she's loved for. On a more serious note, Nick also talks of the miscarriage she had between her two children and how leaving the emotions of this experience undealt with affected her bonding with daughter Blair later on. It's also what she attributes to her postnatal depletion the second time round. Nick's openness about her loss and the challenges she faced as a result is something I know a lot of you can relate to and will be grateful for. Like Nick says throughout the episode, when it comes to being a mum, especially with a baby, we just want to know that what we're going through is normal and that it's temporary. So I hope you find comfort in our conversation today and have a laugh with us too. Just a warning before we begin, today's episode contains strong language and mentions postnatal depression and pregnancy loss. So if any of these things are triggering for you, please take care while you're listening. If you're worried about your own mental health or that of someone you love, visit mentalhealth.org.nz or call 0800 Lifeline to seek support. Here's Nick and I for Motherness. Hi Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm very excited to have you on. Do you want to just start by introducing yourself to everyone? Tell us a little bit about who you are, who you're known as and who you are a mother to. Well, my name is Nick Winslade, and I'm from Nelson originally, but now I live in Mount Monganui. Um, I run a blog called Virgin Mum, um, which was really a maturely named name before I had any kids. Um, and I, what, what was the rest? <laughs> Who your mother did? <laughs> oh yeah, my children. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Um, a uh, uh, bit of context. I'm in like very close to the end of lockdown now and I like the affection for those two little offspring of mine is like diminishing (laughs) yes so if I'll try I know you asked for a lot of honesty which I won't have a problem with but positivity I might (laughs) I might have to really muster um so I've got a three and a half year old boy Marlo and my daughter is 14 months and her name's Blair awesome we're going to start with Marlo first today, just, um, I guess, for ease of telling your story. So let's start with him. And do you want to just give us a quick overview of your birth? Yeah. So um, I got 
well, I decided that I, from a young age, wanted to start having kids when I turned 30. And I think the week of my 30th, we got pregnant with Marlo. And so it was planned. Um, and so it was just really easy, really fast. And I know that's unusual. Um, and we were really lucky. And so it was just all very predictable, all very like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. And I checked out mentally from work months prior to actually leaving. But I think it was around 32 weeks, the scans were showing that he had stopped growing um, in utero. And, you know, like everything is so new and unknown and everything you're finding out from the scans, you're not sure how dramatic any of it is. So I kind of, you know, just, you know, took the advice obviously of my midwife and everyone just to kind of, you know, just keep going and, and we'll get another scan reasonably quickly. And um, then the next scan, he hadn't grown at all. So it quickly became at 36 weeks, okay, next week you're leaving work and you're likely to be induced. And I was just feed up, you have to rest. I rang my mum, who is just completely loving and innocent, but a hypochondriac. And she had booked a flight without us knowing and was up at our house from Nelson the next day. So I literally went from working full time to suddenly my mum is there, which, you know, I was grateful for at the time. It was amazing bonding, I look back on. But at the time it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then, yeah, and then, at, you know, we had a few appointments at the hospital. And I remember one um, appointment sitting with the obstetrician in the hospital and she, you know, was checking all the, you know, the, the critical things, the Dopplers and all of that. And it all looked okay. And, you know, her advice still was that we should be induced. And I kind of like, you know, didn't really even know what that meant. I just thought, oh, okay, we've got to get him out. Like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is all so quick concern. And I'm someone who does like to, you know, ask questions. And I do remember that from my antenatal class was saying, you know, make sure you ask questions. You should be empowered and to know, have enough knowledge to make a, a, an informed decision. So, but my questioning, <laughs> my husband and my mum in the same room were going, what are you doing questioning this? Get him out. Let's get him out, you know. And um, it was such a suddenly very stressful from, you know, being otherwise quite cruisy other than the nausea. Um, suddenly like, okay, wow, he's he's coming and, you know. So we booked <laughs> the obstetrician like, when, when would you like? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm free. I'm free. When are you, you know. So I chucked it in my calendar because – I'm addicted, you know, I was still in work mode. Um, so I put, I literally put in, have a baby in my calendar at 9am on Monday morning. Then, yeah, went in and we were in this tiny assessment room without any like windows at all and um, got given the gels and, you know, nothing happens other than like intense cramps, but it wasn't escalating at all. And I remember, you know, we'd be going for walks around the hospital, around the lake, everywhere. This is North Shore Hospital we'd just like, every time we'd go past the birthing suites, we'd hear, you know, horrors <laughs> from like other women in labor. Yeah. Mooing and screams. And we actually started to build a bit of jealousy <laughs> because we were there from Monday 9am till, well, I ended up having Marlo at, I think it was 9am Wednesday morning. So it was a really, really long time to be there. And in those assessment rooms, and, you know, we'd see people come into the assessment rooms and then suddenly they'd go to the birthing suite. So it was like people were graduating before us and we were there first, you know. It was no, there was no, there was no queue. It wasn't like first in, first serve. And, 
yeah, and then the gels eventually kicked in big time and yeah, all the all the normal things, the plug, the waters, but I was I had been without sleep for most of those most of the time for over those two nights and um my midwife had said to me you're going to have to have an epidural with how little sleep you've had and how long you've been here and I had heard from friends like oh the epidural get that it is so amazing and so I was you know asking for it at about I don't know must have been midnight on the night prior to having him and but it but it it escalated very quickly. I got to the birthing suite and Luke was very happy to get off those like um, out of the AA type chairs that we all used to have at schools into a lazy boy. He was quite happy about that. But I was like vomiting um, and looking back, I think it was exhaustion I don't, and the pain as well. So then they they gave me the epidural and it was awesome. I went from, (laughs) I went from vomiting and just completely out of it. And there's a video, Luke was, because we're in hospital for so long, Luke was trying to do like a little video updates. It was just (laughs) a video of me on the bed going thumbs up and then a video of the clock, like, here we go. And then it was like 11 of those episodes. And then suddenly the next one was him trying to film me and me like squirming over a bowl, go fuck off. (laughs) Um, but I don't know if I can swear on this. You, you can definitely later, can right? swear yeah. on this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then, oh, where was I up to? So you got the epidural. Yes, and it was amazing. And I was like, hello, everyone. Hi. And normally an extrovert, just so excited and, like, suddenly really present. And my midwife says, hey, I've got a student nurse here. And I was like, come on in. And I was asking her about her career goals and, you know, really chatting to everyone and, um, I think quite oblivious to the severity of the situation. But in hindsight, I realized there were a lot of people in that room monitoring me um, because of his, you know, low, low growth. I don't know the t- correct term. And, you know, there was even one of those nurses there that were like the special doctors for making sure a baby's okay. I don't know what they're called. Like a pediatrician? Yes, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, yeah, so, like, I felt nothing. I could tell there was a contraction based on, like, my abdominal kind of um, tensing up. So I knew when to push. I just didn't know what I was pushing. And then suddenly he was there. The pediatrician took one look. look. Oh, actually, no, his heart rate kept dropping. So that was the issue. Every time I was pushing, his heart rate kept dropping. And at one point I remember the midwife kind of banging on the ECG machine going, come on, baby, come on, baby. But, you know, I was on cloud nine. Like this was like, I didn't know what was not, was what wasn't normal being my first. Um, but then luckily he came, the pediatrician took one look at him, saw the color of him and walked away straight away. So it was all very great. And he was actually only six pounds. So not, he wasn't um, officially uh, underweight, but... And he was bigger than they'd expected. So this is the other thing I've learned in hindsight is that scans can be, their margin for error is huge. Um, And, you know, we obviously had to get him out because who knows? And we, you know, this was at 38 weeks that this all happened. And um, yeah, but at the same time, he was completely healthy and fine. And now he's the most pickiest eater, hardly eats anything and he gets by. So I kind of figure, you know, there's even the stuff that I could eat in pregnancy with him, like I could only eat 
like fresh vegetables and nothing else, I'd feel sick. And he's that kid now. He doesn't like sweets. He doesn't like carbs. He just likes fresh veggies. Like it's bizarre. So yeah, I don't know if that's a common thing or not. I since then with my my second that you know I ate everything and she's like that now as well. Yeah. So then we um, turns out that was the busiest night of the year for Auckland Hospital for births. Like every year, that's the same as the same night roughly in the end of September, and they'd had. <clears throat> like nine births that night or something crazy. And my midwife had actually, she told me afterwards, but she had actually been in labor only a few hours prior to me as well. So it was really busy. I was sharing a room with another lady who'd had um, C-section and, you know, there with my me and my baby. And at one point, Milo started coughing up um, the mucus and I freaked and I pushed the crash button <laughs> on the, <laughs> behind me because they'd pointed out an emergency button but or like a button for assistance, but I pushed the crash. And so the whole crash team came running down and saw that he was fine. And then they explained to me at that point that that was totally normal. But that I did not know. And I feel like there should be a there should be a, a little bit of what to expect in your first 24 hours because it is so unknown. Like... is it okay if they sleep on me because that's also something you're taught do not co-sleep but then you're also you know the odd midwife will just whisper under their breath like they're gonna want to sleep on you all night and now you get that right and I think you know once you've had multiple children or if you've been around enough people that have had kids you kind of might have enough self-confidence to just do that but I didn't know and so like my thing was okay I've got to try get him to sleep in his little thing you know lying flat in a cold thing and you know now you look at it and go that's ridiculous like that's not possible yeah so I think um you know, Luke went out and kind of had him sleeping on him in like waiting rooms to let me rest for a bit. And then I think the nurses actually took Marlo off him and put him in a, once he was asleep, in a little crib and put him with his little name next to him so Luke could get some sleep as well because Luke had been awake the three days I had. <laughs> um, and then we got discharged and I remember that that car ride was the most panicked, freaked out car ride of my life. I was like cat on a tin roof with anyone coming near us on the motorway. And if you're in Auckland, you'll know like you go to up to on the North Shore, you go up to Walkworth birth, birth care and um, that's quite a drive for, to be your first drive and at 100Ks, you know. Yeah, we did the same one. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a way away, and but that place was a haven after being in hospital for three days. That was just si- like it was silent. You had your own bathroom, like the food brought to you. It was incredible, and the the assistance, like you had twenty four hour assistance to call on a nurse to come and you know check what you were doing, re feeding, and I remember having looking back, I had to have her. Um, because Marla was so little, he found it really hard to latch on and just stay on or he would fall asleep. And um, so just not have the suction. And so at, at some point, um, <laughs> it's very vague, but it's kind of like a flashback of a nurse was milking me at one point with, and using her hands. I'm My memory's so blurry, but I'm sure her hands and putting my milk into maybe a teaspoon and then syringing it and then giving it to Marlo that way. (laughs) I don't know how far I've come, but um, yeah, like uh, 
I just that was that was hard and I but I was still on cloud nine like I had an instant connection with Marlo absolutely besotted in love um all the feels all the emotions like insane tears of joy um and I was FaceTiming my friends and especially ones that had been mothers well before me that were so excited about this you know and they tell me now like how did you have the energy to do that and I just I think it was just adrenaline but then, you know, day three, it wore off dramatically and I was so low crying like all day, had Marlo in bed with me and the nurse came in going, where's your baby? Because all she could see was an empty bassinet and I'm crying. It lo- probably looked like a <laughs> the start of a really bad TV um, horror. But um, yeah, because again, that co-sleeping thing is very discouraged. But I was like, I'd been awake all night had no sleep and I was at that point just doing what I needed to do and I remember I took even took a selfie of myself in tears with Marlo next to me just going this I know that this moment will be funny one day or I'll look back on it and go wow that was such a hormonal ride and I think you know most mums know know that that comes but I didn't at the time and yeah and then can't even recall what happened after that but um his feeding just improved and he was a bit of a snacker like I didn't realize that that's what he was until a little bit later on but a bit of a snacker and he'd vomit often as well and you know we we saw a lot of help um based on just not knowing that much and his sleep was terrible so I think when sleep's not good you end up googling a lot and trying to seek expertise from probably the wrong places and um, sometimes from professionals as well. And, you know, he was diagnosed with a tongue tie, but not until like three months. Um, But in hindsight, I'm kind of like, I don't even know if that was the problem. I honestly just think he was a snacker and he vomited a lot. We tried all the different medication for reflux and it didn't make any difference. And what I know now, and I'm not a doctor, but what I know now is if they're growing fine, then I don't actually think it's reflux. I think reflux is really if they're, because sometimes it can be silent and there could be no vomit at all. I think if they're not growing, then that's that's when it's you've really got to seek help. But babies just vomit. Like they don't have that valve. And he was a vomiter until eight months. He was on purees vomiting he was still on purees at eight months he couldn't have any finger foods at all and so I think you know with time we just learned way more about him and and also his temperament was very sensitive so he would cry a lot and and vomit a lot and those two things weren't actually linked (laughs) and in terms of your reflux experience with him yeah when you look back now like was it was there a lot of pain associated with him when he was feeding and I guess when he wasn't? Was that what, I guess, triggered you guys to seek help and think that that's what was maybe causing his unsettledness? Yeah, and I think, I do also think that it was, if he was sleeping fine, I don't think we would have had any issues. I don't think we would have. I I just think we were trying to find an answer for the lack of sleep um, and him not sleeping at all very well. Um, But 
I think, you know, like you just don't have any anchor as a frame of reference when you're on your first time about what's normal. And I look back now and I go, that was just him as well. I think now that I know him, he was just a terrible sleeper. He just didn't want to sleep for long stretches. And he was gaining weight like actually astronomically for how little he was. So I don't think that, you know, like I can't, I don't even feel like I can confidently comment on the experience of reflux because I don't even think it was that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like I think it was um, just vomit, just a vomi, a vomi little dude. Mm, yeah, I had like a real happy spiller and I think I was always kind of looking for a reason why, like is something wrong? And I think we also have that expectation on newborns and I know you've spoken about it before in terms of sleep and how we have like this obsession particularly with newborns and like how they're sleeping when you look back on his sleep now and I guess even Blair's as well what are your thoughts around our expectations for newborns and their sleep yeah I mean I I have two kids that are chalk and cheese in absolutely every possible way like I could list them but I won't like they're completely different. Even their complexion is different. And I think that has shown me that they're just different kids. There's different temperaments, different personalities from day one, you know, um, even down to the pregnancy and what I could eat, <laughs> you know. And I think that's what I would put it down to in terms of the variations and in, in, in like sleep. But the expectations are rough because, you know, a friend and I were pregnant at the same time and, and having our kids together and our friends that had had kids, you know, not long, not um, quite a quite a wee while before us, they said, you know, we had our kids sleeping through the night at six weeks and we followed the schedule. And so we're like, well, tell us the schedule. So both of us learned this thing off by heart, wrote it all down so we'd remember, and we were trying to implement this schedule from day one, and it just was not working for either of us. Six weeks comes and goes, and then we both get a consultant in to come and help us because our kids aren't sleeping. And and this went on, you know, like, yes, the consultant offered a lot of, like, I would say traditional advice, and I wouldn't seek that advice again, but I know when you're wanting control, you'll find it in, a, in wherever you can. <laughs> and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But as long as you're aware that, um, you know, control, you can't have control, essentially, um, depending on your kid. You know, there might be some kids that do, that actually re- respond really well with structure and schedules. But I'm not someone who does, so and my kid isn't either, and I'm, that's not that's not surprising. So, you know, and obviously it's it's not like I've thrown routine co- completely out the window. Of course we do, but it's just I think in those early months, it's so important to know that newborn newborns are meant to wake up overnight, and if they sleep <clears throat> for longer, that's a bonus. But it it can't be a goal because I just feel like it's just gonna. I don't know, but I did. I tried. I tried to. I did that on number one. But then with Blair, she, she ended up sleeping through the night all on her own. Like even from the first week, 
I was having to wake her up to feed her, which was the advice. So complete opposite. Yeah, it's funny how they're all so different, hey? And I think yeah. as well that benefit of being a second-time mum, but we'll we'll get to that. Yeah. You know, you mentioned before as well, we're told not to co-sleep, but that your baby might want to sleep on you. Mm. Did you ever, I guess, surrender to that the first time or have that realisation? And what has your relationship been with, I guess, things like co-sleeping and baby-wearing with both Marlo and Blair? Yeah, I. it's funny because I... <laughs> I'm reluctant to put my hand up and say that I'm an advocate for any of those things because I know there are hard out advocates for those things and they have their Facebook groups and they are all about it. And I am like, go you, that's not me, but I'm more of a person that's like, um, do what's whatever your kid needs at the time. Like, and, and also do whatever you need at the time. Um, I know those sound contradictory, but you know, like you, there's some days where you're like, no kid, you are sleeping in your cot. (laughs) I need a break or I need a good night's sleep or whatever. You know, this, I'm talking a bit, a little bit older, but, um, with Blair, I, you know, she was in her own room, but I was sleeping in the bed in her room. So she was in her, um, Moses basket and on the bed and I was next to her in the bed and um i th- you know i didn't i didn't really think too much about it on number 2 with number 1 um yeah i guess it was more the safety thing like marlo was so little uh he you know i wouldn't confidently i i don't even think i could have had a good sleep if he was in bed with us so i i kept him beside my bed in his um Moses basket at the time and then his bassinet is in our room but you know even now as a three and a half year old he wakes up and comes into our bed at some point so um I'm not an advocate for it I just do what's necessary and there's some nights where I'm hard on him and make him stay in his own bed yeah like I'm not um, one way or the other I just um just depends on yeah I guess like how where I'm at yeah and what I'm comfortable with and um, you know, I do like think there's a role to play for like teaching them and, and helping them feel safe in their own bed and making sure that bed's actually comfortable because <laughs> there's been times I'm like, you, this is not a comfortable bed and I'm making you try and sleep in there. Um, but yeah, I think it's just really natural for kids to want to be near you. Um, and I maybe that's a part of my upbringing too. Like I can remember at some age that I obviously had enough memory to remember, um, like being in mum and dad's bed and like hearing my breath against dad's breath and realizing dad has deeper breaths in me. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so that, you know, I'm sure that doesn't wear off. It's not, it's not like, you know, you sleep train hard out, but then at some point they're going to come into your bed again, you know, when they've, when there's thunder and lightning or whatever. I don't even know if I sound really flaky right now. No, I completely agree with you. It's kind of like a, some days you want to do what's right for you because you're touched out and you've had enough and other days you want the snuggles and they want the snuggles and it's kind of like a, I'm the same I'm more like a as and when yeah we need it when she needs it when it works for both of us she can come into yeah. our bed and then some nights I'm like I'm not having this and yeah it's a little bit beyond the fourth trimester and that newborn stage but mm. yeah I think I completely know what you're saying doesn't sound like at all let's talk about your physical recovery First of all, with Marlo. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, going into it the first time, 
you know, you've got things like your postpartum body, you're bleeding, potentially you've got some tearing, your milk comes in, all of these fun things about having a postpartum body. What surprised you most about the physical recovery the first time around? Well, the first thing being the after pains, which I had never heard of before. <laughs> I had no idea that they existed. Um, and because I'd had that epidural, I don't think I felt the worst of them, but I felt them with Blair. Holy shit. They were like just, just the same as like my contractions in late labor. Um, and I like, but on number one, I'd never heard of those, didn't know that they happened. And that was completely normal for a uterus shrinking back. I had no idea. Um, the other thing that happened to me, which I haven't shared much of cause it's super gross, but I'll do it here. <laughs> um, and it happened on both kids. So around about, I think it's like maybe four, no, probably a bit earlier, like maybe like a month to three months, I just had absolute agony going number twos, like to the point of like, I think subconsciously holding it in, holding it in, afraid to go to the bathroom because it would rip and tear and bleed and be absolute agony. And um, <laughs> I have one hilarious story and I don't know why I'm sharing it, but I will. So I was um, this was after having Marlo. I was staying down at my mum and dad's and Nelson, we went to visit with him. And I had like, the, this was just, you know, when you just, you know, pain's coming and you can't do anything about it. So you kind of like, you're stressed about it before it's even real. And I'm like, I just come in and mum knew about this. Mum knew all about it. I come in and say to mum, mum, I, I need to go. And she's like, oh, okay, honey. And I was like, I'm going to run a bath. And and she's like, you do what you need to do. And my dad's in the room going, what? What's going on? And we're just like, mum just shakes her head like nothing. <laughs> and I had to go and run a bath and I squatted like a dog and I took a shit in a fucking bath. <laughs> and it was the most <laughs> dehumanizing, like, degrading lowest point in my life <laughs> and like how much do you want to know that thing was so fucking hard that I could grab I had gloves on I could grab it and it oh. stayed intact because I'd obviously held on for so long and no, I had previously I know I bleached so much that but I bleached not my asshole I bleached that <laughs> bathroom so intensely after that but yeah um I you know I was I was drinking the recommended water intake for a breastfeeding mother for a week and like no one <laughs> no one can do that it's it's like you're drinking all day long I was doing that for a week and think it was like 18 it was something ridiculous I can't remember now I'll, I'll look it up later, but it was um, a ridiculous amount that it was recommended to have and it was doing nothing. And then I went to a physio and she basically said there was a, you know, a cavity that was caused by the birth. And actually she didn't say it was caused by the birth because she didn't know that. She wouldn't know that. Um, but, you know, I since learned that that could also be just be caused in pregnancy as well. So is it kind of like a prolapse? 
Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's there's there's like seven different prolapses or something, and it was one. It was more of a rectal one. So I think most people have like bladder leakage, or even like number two leakage. Um, I don't know why I can't say the word shit or poo, but I can talk about shitting in a bath. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, but yeah, completely foreign to me. And luckily my friend who had a baby at the same time had issues, different issues, but you know, we would just laugh and send photos to each other of, well, not, not graphic photos, <laughs> but you know, of just our mishaps with our nether regions. But yeah, I think that was really helpful at the time. And that's something you don't get from an antenatal group. Is that kind of, I interviewed yeah. a postnatal physio for the podcast and yeah, I learned so much. There's so many things you don't know. And I walked away from that going, yeah. I wonder if I've got something going on that I don't know about. Yeah. For anybody listening who might be like, oh, this sounds like me. Can you just kind of take us through what you did to, I guess, recover from it or whether it just got better with time and whether there were any other symptoms that people should look out for that might lead them to maybe need to go see a postpartum physio? Um. Well, I... I went to this physio in desperation, basically. Um, so I think if you're in this position, you'll know the symptoms. Um, and, you know, the main thing she's saying is that with the relaxing hormone that comes while you're breastfeeding, um, it's really, and I may be wrong, listen to the physio podcast, but that it's really hard for muscles to get their elasticity back until that hormone's completely gone or like you stop breastfeeding. So that was the advice was that there was a technique. (laughs) Here we go. There's a technique of how to assist the poo out of its home and to clear it and, and to just get the stool out, especially was the, the pain bleeding point. And because it just keep creating fissures each time. And if you've ever had a fissure, it was like, I had six new ones being created each time um, and then they just take time to heal. But yeah, so apparently this technique, which you should Google, it involves your thumb and your vagina and you're assisting that little bad guy out of there. But apparently in Survivor, you know, the TV show, yeah, um, th- constipation's a really common problem because they're on such bad diet and very, you know, little food that this is like the the hack that all the girls use to help themselves out. So there you go. If you're ever going to go on Survivor. How was your, you often refer to your vagina as the Baj Mahal. Yeah, How was that situation? Yeah, the temple of life. It's more like the slums next to the Taj Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> How was your recovery in that region yeah well I was um like it and the, the first the first time I recovered pretty well you know like I um didn't realize all the bleeding either I mean again this is the stuff that you should you know you should be told about all the bleeding and how long it goes for but yeah no that was fine it was more just my asshole being an asshole and I think you know that whole area it was all just jambled into one. So I avoid, avoided any kind of visual contact with what was happening down there just because there was so much pain. Let's quickly talk about your breastfeeding with Marlo. Yeah, so he was just a snacker. So initially, because he was so small, it was really hard to latch. And then he eventually got it. I had a really good supply, never had issues. But then um, 
he just was a real snacker. Like I remember having to like wake him up to keep going and stuff like that. And if he was going, sometimes he'd take like an hour and a half. <laughs> it was so long and that in the middle of the night is just not okay. And it just got to the point where I was just exhausted, to be honest. And I called in a, a consultant to come and help. And she asked me to do like a diary of what I'd done in a 24-hour period. And I think she counted maybe like 22 feeds. <laughs> so so I'd gone from like a really regimented schedule in day one to try and get him to sleep. And that didn't work. And to like basically just constant snack feeding. And... um you know, her advice was to get him onto a bottle, which we eventually did. And then I just started mix feeding with him, which did help a little bit. Um, and then introducing food helped massively. Um, but he didn't help his sleep. When I say it helped, it helped how little I'd have to feed him. And yeah, and then I think I mixed fed him I mean, mixed feed in terms of breastfeed and bottle until he was eight months where he dropped the bird completely and um, just bottle from there. Yeah. And do you have like an emotional connection to breastfeeding or for you, is it just like a really practical thing? Yeah, practical. It was funny though, when I did drop a lot of feeds with Marlo, like those snack feeds down to maybe only four feeds, <laughs> I, and introduced the bottle, I remember having like this weird thought come into my mind about like formula and it being really not evil, but just like a threat. It was like a really irrational thought where I was thinking about the cows that produced the milk. <laughs> and like, I think most mums who have dropped lots of feeds know there's like a massive hormonal weird thing that goes on. And it was like, a, it was suddenly like a jealous, like a new, a new girlfriend or something, you know, um, completely irrational. And because I had also previously in my advertising life, um, for like three years worked on an infant formula. Like I know how safe and how much work they put into that and know that it is actually good. And they add so much other stuff into it. Like I'm so fine with it I've been in a million focus groups from mothers talking about this like I've empathized with all of their need states and everything going on like I more than anyone should have been completely fine but it, but it is it was in just like a moment just a moment in a 24-hour period too of the hormones just felt um, like I'd failed and that there was something else that was taking my role from me but then I came to and I was completely like rational again and realized that was ridiculous but I you know sometimes think that and that's fine but I just it was a hormonal emotional thing and I realized that this obviously did mean more to me than just a practicality as well um yeah and like I I had never thought you know prior to that that breastfeeding was anything more but I think it was um I don't know, I think because he was so little when he was born and it had what it was what had brought him back up to like a champ a champion weight really quickly, I think I did feel a sense of um like accomplishment, you know? And um and I know those are words you can't say regarding breastfeeding because a lot of mums can't do it, but at the same time I knew that that was what I was I could do something to help in terms of, you know, his weight. 
Um, and I think once that suddenly went to formula and it improved his moods, I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I can step back. <laughs> like, I can actually do that. And that's absolutely good for him as well. Um, so that was a big, a big learning curve. Yeah, nice. I think, yeah, there is a lot of, I guess, scaremongering and fear and guilt associated with formula. So whenever I interview a mum who has formula fed, I do like to get, I guess, the, like a gauge on that and how they yeah. felt about it because um, I think it's really important for mums to know. I mean, I haven't formula fed, but it's always been like this, like the other fear. And so I know what you mean when yeah. you say that. So I haven't actually had to go through that experience of changing yeah. over. So what would you like to say to the mum? So I guess particularly are potentially in that newborn stage and they are struggling with breastfeeding and then they're having to introduce mm. formula and they're feeling that feeling. What would you like to oh, say man, to them? I, it's a hard one because on one hand I want to say like breastfeeding was painful for the first two weeks. And uh, there was moments where I was like, oh, maybe I'm one of those mums where I can't, like, where it's always going to hurt or whatever, or I can't bear this pain, it's too hard. And I just persevered and it got easy and it was easy peasy, no sanitizing, all that stuff. It was so rewarding, so, like, just no admin, which is amazing. You know, sanitizing in bottles and all that stuff are annoying. Um, but I have to also say that, like, just because of the baby he was – it saved me. It saved us. And, um, you know, when I talked about the hormonal issues of the jealous girlfriend, whatever, it was quickly replaced with, oh, <laughs> I've got some freedom. Luke can do some stuff, you know, Luke can feed him. And that was not just like freedom for me, but that was like, Luke could, he's like an acts of service, you know, as his love language and he could suddenly do something to help. And that was massive for him to be have a, a new role of one helping me, but also having, you know, provide some sustenance to our boy as well and, and do the nights. And like I went to the hairdressers for four hours, which, you, you know, if you've got a snack feeder on the boob, you couldn't never do. Um, so I guess it's just, again, it, it's about like, I could, because I wouldn't want to say, oh, um, formula is just so much easier. Don't persevere because you do have to persevere with breastfeeding. You definitely do. Like it's, it's not, you know, when I say my supplier was all good, I didn't have issues there. Um, you know, there was still the pain and, you know, so there has to be a choice element. So I, I honestly, what I would say is try, if you can get rid of all the other noise that's coming at you, whether it's from other people or society or what your friends have done, what your mom has done is a big one. Well, I realize like, you know, you do need your mum when you have a kid, but you also realise that you actually need to stand on your own ground a lot too and everything she's advising is not necessarily what you should take either. Um, so if you can, try and get rid of all of all of that, all of your, um, I guess, your perceptions of what other people might think and all of that and actually just go, well, what do I want and what do I actually want and persevere with that. Because, um, you know, with breastfeeding, it can change so so quickly. Like, yeah. So I think it's really just about tuning into, I guess, really what you're wanting out of it um, and and just trying with real determination to, to go with whatever that is. Um, and obviously, if there's medical advice, then take that because <laughs> that's a different story. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Thank you. 
you were talking about your husband just then. Um, and when we talk about the fourth trimester, we are always talking about baby and how it's adjustment for mum, but it's also an adjustment for dads as well. So when you look back on your fourth trimester with Marlo, and I guess a little bit beyond that when you guys were still going through that experience of him having reflux, how did your husband embrace that time and how was having a newborn baby for your relationship in those first few yeah. months? Um Oh, it's such a hard one to comment on. Like, I wish I'd done more, um, like, I wish I had more insight into this, which isn't that just a sign of, <laughs> you know, actually how little effort I have put into our marriage since having kids. I think it's also because we're putting so much into yeah these other little humans that you've only got limited energy. And I think it's something... We, we need to talk about more. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, there's, there is, you know, now that we've got a daughter and Luke has this amazing bond with her, he got it immediately. He's got this incredible bond with her and he's never had that with Marlo, like never did, never bonded the same as what he's got with Blair now. And I do hear that's pretty common dad-daughter thing. Um, and I think he, you know, he navigated it hands-on as most you know good husbands do really just trying to pick up the pieces and the slack and but really not quite know his role anymore um because you know he's not the one feeding he's trying to help but I'm like snapping and googling and talking to everyone about every bloody advice ever um but yeah I do think in hindsight that that you know it was he was finding it difficult because he didn't have that bond that I had with Marlo. And I think there was a little bit of, um, I wouldn't say jealousy, but just like a um, bit of like foreign territory for him where it was just supernatural for me. Uh, and, you know, for mums it is always because we've bonded in pregnancy as well to just kind of click into mum mode. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a little bit harder for him as I say, like an access service guy, didn't really know what he could do. And um, I think once he kind of realized, oh, what, you know, the things he could do a little bit later on, I think he got the hang of it a bit more. And, you know, I think being a, um, I hate the word control freak. I'm going to say control obsessed person. I, um, you know, I was really wanting to nail the motherhood thing and so I took it on um and I didn't give a lot of room for him to be honest I didn't and um that's something I I still don't do well to be honest but I think I just give less fucks and so there is more room for him to take over but in those early days it really was me trying to do it all myself and I I went from like a high intensity 50 60 hour a week job to this and of course you carry that over right into okay I've got to nail this what am I going to do today productive prop solve problems all right how where are we going you know and I wasn't obsessed with like you know like getting him to take his first steps it's not that but it was more just solving all the problems I remember I had this like um note you know like notes on your phone and it was like okay um all these lists of things that I needed to solve about Marlo and it was things like, you know, the tongue tie or the sleep thing or the getting him to eat this or whatever. It was just like a massive list. I remember just one day just deleting it and going, 
there's nothing wrong with him. He's just who he is. And it was his, just his early signs of his temperament, man. He was a hard baby, man. So hard, and he's still intense now with his emotions, and I love it, and I'm so grateful for it because it's who he is. But you know, when he's happy, he's the happiest kid you've ever met, and then when he is angry, he is angry. So I think, um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was just the other thing that made it difficult and good at the same time was having a lot of friends all going through the same thing. We, we, there were six of us six couples that all had babies within two weeks and all our first babies. So it was incredible in terms of um, camaraderie and, you know, all the boys, you know, would catch up and talk about and complain about, you know, their wives and the kids and their new life and, you know, share photos or whatever with each other. And so that was really good. But that also was really hard too in the sense that, you know, comparison is obviously just the biggest killjoy. Um, And, really hard when you're the biggest insight I have around like new mums is there's two things you're looking for and you're looking for it from wherever you can and that's to know that what you're going through is temporary and normal so the things you'll find you know things you might be google searching or go on the mum forums about or talking to friends about you just want to know is it is it normal (laughs) is this normal and to get that validation is all you need and is this temporary? And most of it is, you know, I think that's why um, second kid is easier in that sense, because you know, you know that, they, you know, if she's not sleeping tonight, it doesn't mean that that's forever. Or if she's not eating, you know, these big solid meals now, that's it's gonna, it's just going to change on its own. I don't even have to do anything. And there's a, that's a shift from having two because when you're on your first, you think you've got to be the one to implement absolutely every change, but they just do it on their own. Yeah, they are their own person. Mm. Let's talk about Blair now. Do you want to talk us through when you guys felt like you were ready to have number two? So before Blair, actually, um, oh, I will also say when Marla was six months, I was like, yeah, we could have another. I'm totally ready. And then luckily we didn't because holy shit, it got harder. <laughs> no, so I I had a miscarriage in between actually and it was over the new year period and I had um, a, like a really faint positive test and Luke and I decided we were ready to start trying and um, it must have happened pretty quickly. Um and we got a positive and it was only a week later that I miscarried and that entire time from finding out to miscarrying we were with people so it was the most intense bizarre um, thing because we just never had a moment to take it in you know just the space to be like oh wow so my immediate reaction, even though it was planned, my immediate re- reaction was, holy shit, how are we going to do this? This is going to be so intense. What are we, you know, what are we doing? And then when I started miscarrying, it was like, what was I thinking? I cannot believe I was so ungrateful to be worried about it all. Um, you know, and those were my first immediate reactions was just guilt. <laughs> And basically, you know, like my 
natural response was to freak out, which is totally normal. And then my natural response was to feel bad for freaking out because I should have just been happy, you know. And the reason I bring that up was because that, um, you know, like I know that miscarriage is really common and because I was around people and it was all very short and quick, I didn't ever deal with that, with any of just of that. Um, and then so we gave it a couple of months because I don't know if this is true, but because I'd heard that often after a miscarriage, you can ovulate two eggs and there's a higher percentage chance that you could have twins. <laughs> and I don't know how true that is, but we were like, let's just give it a wide berth. Um, we will, you know, wait a few months and try again. And then we did. And uh, I think it took a couple of months and we got pregnant with Blair. Yeah. And how do you reflect on and reconcile that guilt now? Is it still there or do you feel like you've kind of processed it? Well, that's, that's so the, the big thing I've been dealing with since Blair is, um, I was, you know, this is common for having two kids, um, which was that, you know, the mum guilts of number one and how they're going to cope with the change and all the things they're going to miss out on and grieving all of the time we had with the, when it was just them. Like, I know that's really normal, but I actually didn't bond with Blair initially. And I found it really hard to have that same feeling like I had with Marlo. Um, and, and, and I can say now that I, I have the same bond, but it just was really slow and steady. I had to almost work at it, you know? Um, but realizing the absence of that connection and that really strong affection was, um, a lot to do with guilt. And I think it was, I thought initially that it was the guilt of, um, you know, Marlo missing out and, and me not being as available for him. But I, but that was almost a manifest of, I re, since realized of, um, my undealt with guilt with this miscarriage and, and realizing that I just didn't even give it any airtime, you know? Um, which if you're a really rational person in your own head, like you're always trying to like rationalize your own emotions, um, you realize it's just not a good way to do life. And I unfortunately have that as a default. I actually just ended up trying to let myself feel like the emotions of that miscarriage. And I have to kind of probe it out of myself. So I wrote a letter to each of my kids, including that one I lost. And, you know, the one to Marlo was all around like being super protective of him um, and really feeling like he's fragile and he's my responsibility to protect him. Um, and then to Blair, it was, you know, I love you. I love you so much. I just don't feel it right now, but I do love you. You're mine, blah, blah, blah. And then the one to the baby was the baby I lost was, um, more around just an, just a complete acknowledgement of you, you being a, a life that we created that would have had siblings and, you are loved and you, you know, we, you had a family and you existed, I guess. Um, <clears throat> you know, I know everyone has a totally different experience in terms of miscarriage, um, but I just hadn't acknowledged it enough. I hadn't processed it enough. I think my default, um, my survival mechanism, I think, was to kind of play it down in my head and go, it's common, it's natural, 
you know, what was meant to be will be, that kind of stuff. And and often, you know, that stuff is good, but I think once you've gone through the motions and once you've really let yourself grieve or feel or whatever it is, then those kinds of like inspirational canvas memes are appropriate. Um, but I think I can apply, for myself anyway, I can apply them too early and realize I haven't even really um, experienced whatever I needed to to really kind of let that go. And from there, that's when my relationship with Blair just went, like, grow properly, you know. <laughs> it wasn't stunted anymore. I let go of so much of the mum guilt I had around Marlo. And <clears throat> there's a term I've talked about a lot, which I have not coined. I think there's a book on it um, called Postnatal Depletion. And it's a – you will know all about it. It's essentially like a – that feeling of just real emptiness, um, especially postpartum. And it's not to the ex- uh, dramatic extent of postnatal depression, um, but it's definitely the start of. But it's kind of, I guess, the early signs that are way more common that are, that are hard to identify because on one hand, I remember doing a post about it and just talking about all of the things I was you know, feeling like the weight of just mundane like every day the same thing just felt intensely heavy and burdening and um I remember there was a mum that replied that's motherhood you know get over it and I'm like whoa 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 no it's not (laughs) you know yes there are mundane days but it should not weigh you down to the point of what am I doing you know um And then obviously postnatal depression is, is far more intense and, um, and you know, there are symptoms of that that I haven't experienced. But, um, you know, I think it's almost the earlier signs of, of getting to that. So I guess, you know, when I say that postnatal de- depletion is normal, in my experience, it was caused by something that I that was undealt with and... I'm really glad that I gave it the space and I have my virgin mum community to to just hear other people's experience and realise actually that's not, um, yeah, it might be normal as in common, but doesn't mean it's something normal I should live with. And um, I think it was really good and I think really good for other people too to hear um, my journey of going through that and being really honest with myself about what the cause was and grieving that publicly. <laughs> and do you think that your like your personality and your tendency to try do all the things and be all the things and you know what we're talking about with not letting Luke do some of those yeah. parts of you know of having a baby and looking after a house do you think that element of your personality contributed hugely to that postnatal totally, depletion? Totally. Like stubbornly independent. And, you know, a big, uh, you know, feeling out of control is essentially my biggest fear. And emotions are uh, that for me, <laughs> you know. Emotions are me feeling out of control. So, um, that you know, that's just something that I, like, have unfortunately never really been able to do, like, in live real time. But I do it later <laughs> when it's kind of gotten to the point of, you know, for me it doesn't bubble over to, like, anything ragey. It just gets to the point of, like, I have no motivation. Like you have to deal with it now. Yeah, yeah. Let's 
go into your story with Blair and I guess, um, yeah, let's talk about her birth and then we'll kind of get into the details of how, I guess, your fourth trimester with her eventuated. So do you want to take us through her birth? Yeah, so because I was terrified that my um, poo pains <laughs> and whatever cavity or whatever that was, I was terrified that that would be further damaged and like become even worse. So when I first got my midwife, I said to her, I'm having a C-section just book it in now. That's what I'm doing. I don't want to cause any more damage. And my midwife was really obliging in terms of kind of entertaining my fear. Um, But I know now that she had in the back of her head that I would be fine. And I, you know, I'll eventually come around to the idea of just doing it vaginally, Vaj Mahali, um, again, myself. But, you know, she booked me all the appointments and I met with the hospital obstetrician and she was said you know um often these pelvic floor things happen in pregnancy and because I think when your uterus expands it kind of lifts your pelvic floor up as well and so that you know she's like there's absolutely no direct link between labor and pelvic floor issues and I don't know how true that is that that's what she said to me and so I was like well okay (laughs) so pregnancy then could be the issue then I there's nothing I can do to avoid it if there's going to be further damage and she did say like it's unlikely like most mums experience their worst um kind of pelvic floor issues from their first pregnancy um so I thought okay all right I've come around to the idea of not necessarily get a c-section um but I was like I'm definitely getting epidural epidural for sure I cannot do that again (laughs) like it was so amazing when I could be fully present. Um, and my midwife again was like, yeah, well, we'll see. Because <laughs> you're in Tauranga now. <laughs> we don't have a lot of anaesthetists. <laughs> and she said, like, they don't even work on the weekends. So, <laughs> I mean, they're on call. So, you know, she was trying to set my expectations pretty low. But anyway, everything was just going swimmingly. Everything was just perfect with Blair. Um, growth. You know, and I was getting regular growth um, scans because of what happened with Marlo. And she was just fine, average, just then suddenly skyrocketed even. Like, she was huge. She was like 97th percentile. And so there was never that issue or that fear. And so my midwife would just say, you know, like, everything's going really well. Like, you know, you could you could just try this naturally. And she did say to me, there's a real difference between getting induced and, or and just or having no induction and the labor pains are far more manageable and I was so skeptical of that I was like nah there's no way like but then she said to me if I any of my girls get induced I make sure or I um try and get them an epidural because induction is far more intense than um without so <clears throat> We got to due date with her, which I obviously was two weeks early with Marlo being induced. And then every day overdue felt like a week. And if you've been here, it's bloody awful. (laughs) It's like you're on adrenaline because you're ready every day for it to happen and then it doesn't. And so I went to, I had my mum and dad staying with us because they were ready to, you know, take over Marlo duty. And um, they were here for weeks before Blair even turned up. And 
we, you know, it got to the point where mum was like, oh, just get her out. Just, you know, just get induced, get her out. But at this point I was like, no, I've already committed so far. Like I'm not getting induced. That's what my midwife said, you know, is the worth. And so we got to eight days. And actually I should say that this was like me relying on my instinct a lot more um, of going, she's fine. She's happy in there. Everything's okay. You don't need to intervene. You just let it, let her do her thing. And then eight days overdue, she, you know, it was like early in the morning, um, it came on and I was at home and just kind of going, yeah, this, you know, getting bad. But, you know, in between the contractions, it's like I could go to sleep. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to hang out at home. And I rang the midwife and I said to Luke, um, I said to Luke, oh, I need to like pretend that it's way worse than it is so that we can go in and then I can get an epidural. And so when I first rang her, I was like, uh, I think I really, and then a contraction came on luckily and I was like, oh my God, okay. Yep. And she's like, I'll meet you there. And I said to Luke, like, I still think she's going to turn us away. I still think she will. And and Luke was stressing out because we we're in commuter traffic on a Monday morning. And I was like, just don't worry, just take it easy. We're okay. And I was like on my sitting, trying to sit on my hands. Actually, if you've been in a car in labor before, I had my one hand on the glove, like the glove, and the other hand on the middle console, just trying to lift myself off as if that would somehow alleviate some pressure. And as you know, it's impossible. But um I, like I was in standstill traffic and labor with people, you know, I felt like everyone was staring at me and could tell, but they obviously weren't. And, um, and then when we got there, you know, I, I, we, I was, Luke's like, should I go to the ED or should we find a park? I was like, find a park. Cause they're not going to let us in. Like, I feel completely fine. Like these contractions are bad, but I feel completely fine in between, you know? And so we found a park far, far away and walked into the thing, you know, a good couple of minute walk, had to stop and bend over on a bonnet of a car at one point and walked in. And then when we got up to the hospital level, I just burst out into tears, just relieved that we were there. And then they checked me and I was eight centimeters. <laughs> my midwife was, my midwife was like, Oh, congrats. You're eight centimeters. And I was like, no she's like that's a good thing and I was like it means you know I knew that okay this is going so fast that I was not getting an epidural and I was just like give me my epidural give me my epidural now and she was like yeah 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 like scribbling things on her notes but probably nothing to do with it and then at one point Luke was like Luke asked that oh then they brought a student nurse in because of course that's my thing now and Luke asked the nurse, like, oh, what do you think the likelihood is of getting a, an epidural? And the student nurse was like, well, he's in theatre right now. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I just zoned out at that point. I had, like, everything had gone dark. I had tunnel vision. Luke was trying to offer me water and just I, – and I'm not, like, a screamer or a mower or anything. I'm just nothing. There's nothing. I'm deadpan. There's no noise. And I'm just there by myself. And I just, just the rest of it was just me. Um, so I wasn't getting my epidural. And at that point, the, the contractions were like hard and fast. And I think it's quite common that your labor time halves. So at this point, it was like, I didn't know what my natural labor time was because I was induced with Marlow. But um, this, you know, this, my first contraction was at 3 a.m. 
and this was 8am that I was 8 centimetres and then um, I wanted to start pushing and I wanted to get in the bath and so I got in the bath but then they couldn't find the heart rate so I had to get out of the spa bath while pushing and walk across the room and up onto the bed which sounds fine but unless you've been in labor and know what it's like yeah yeah yeah. and in push mode like oh god that was the darkest moment I reckon just like that comfort at least of that water to like back to gravity back on my back (laughs) on the bed and then the whole waters just burst and I pushed her out within a few pushes and then she was here. Wow. And what was and it, was it all like done. meeting her for the first time? You know, you've kind of spoken, you know, I guess in light of your miscarriage that bonding with her didn't come the same way as it did with Marlo. So what was that experience like? Did you get that high straight away or did it feel a little bit nah, different? I didn't. And I, you know, like I hadn't had any epidural either, so I was drug free. <laughs> So it was a bit more like, thank God. But I think also with Marlo, because it was a a higher stress situation, I think there was a, and, you know, not knowing if he was growing or if he was okay, I think there was a bit more relief when I met him, you know, that he was okay. And I think that was even my first words to him was, are you okay? And my first words to Blair... She was so wrinkly and she had this little angry face and she had like the line in the in between her eyebrows. I was like, girl, you need Botox. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that was my first words to her. Um, but it would have been me trying to be like, try and lift the mood, even though that was not my role in that moment to try and make someone else feel, because I think I had been quite rude prior to that, to the midwife and the student nurse. But anyway, um, yeah, no, it was it was more just like there's a baby, you know. It was it was a lot more ambivalence. Although I had way more like sense of pride that I had just done that without any assistance, and that I'd stuck to my gut as far as you know, just waiting till she was ready and she was cooked, and it was you know her deciding when she wanted to come out, and I felt really really proud about that. And I, that hadn't been something on my bucket list. I was never one of those, like, I really want to do a vaginal, v- vaginal birth and do it all myself. Like, I didn't ever think that was a, something that I'd aspire to. And, but I was just so, so proud of myself because it was so bloody hard. And I'm not someone who runs marathons or sets stupid challenges like that. So for me, this is like, was like that, <laughs> you know, where I was like, I'm in it by myself and I've got to get through this and I did it you know it was that it was that feeling and at what point did you kind of click on to the fact that it was feeling a little bit different with her in terms of that bonding and those emotions did you realize that straight away or did it take a few days for you to go hmm this just feels a little bit different yeah uh, I don't know I don't know I didn't realize it. Like I, I was very aware that it wasn't the same feelings. Um, I just didn't know why. Um, and I just thought it was, you know, I've got two kids now. This is life. Um, it's not a novelty <laughs> anymore. Um, yeah, no, it wasn't till a wee while later when I think, I, you know, as I talked about with that kind of postnatal depletion and those other symptoms that I realized that actually this is probably something else. And, you know, I'm not lumping those two things together. Like if you don't, you know, I do have um, another friend who her and her partner have 
um, a bond with their kids and they're the opposite. So, you know, she didn't get it with number one, but she had it flooding with number two. So I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason sometimes for that stuff either. And, and you know, another follower of mine, she had a baby at the same time and she had the same thing where it was just a slow burn. It wasn't, you know, an immediate thing. And, you know, you do love your kids. You or you end up loving them both equally. Um but yeah, it just wasn't. It wasn't the same, and I'm not. I'm not sure why. There might be some like physiological reason for it. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's actually from the conversations I've had, more normal that it's a slow burn than that love bubble oxytocin yeah. high that we're all conditioned to expect. Like true. Yeah, you know, I think even if it takes you a while to realize when you look back that it wasn't necessarily that high yeah. straight away. That was my experience. I never thought yeah. that was anything wrong at the time and not that there was anything wrong I definitely wouldn't use that word but when I look back I kind of go oh it wasn't until like 10 weeks where I was like oh my god I'm obsessed with you but up until then I was just getting to know her like she felt like a stranger yes 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 totally that's exactly it and yeah because I remember my midwife asking me like you know she's yours are you just in love and I just said I just need to study her you know, I remember thinking, I just need to like look at her and study her as if I needed to get to know her before I liked her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Talk us through, I guess, the first few days. Did you go to birth care, like a birth center, or did you no. go straight home? No. So in Tauranga, the birthing center, you can only stay there if you give birth there. And even more frustrating was a friend of mine had a baby the day after me, and she went there and had the most amazing experience. There was no one else there. And I was like, imagine if we were both in there together, like three days without the older kids, just us and our newborns time to connect. And man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that just because as soon as I came home, it became all about Marlo and how he was going to cope with it and how what his experience was and making sure it was positive and making sure I was really even with my time. So like, as soon as I, you know, got her to sleep, it was like, okay, Marlo, let's play, you know. It was so much of that overcompensating. And I, that's a big part of what caused my exhaustion was just, you know, overcompensating, thinking that, you know, there was the guilt there that I wasn't giving him enough or I wanted it to be so perfect for him. There's probably something really deep and dark in my childhood for all of this. No, I think <laughs> it's completely yeah, no. normal. Like, I remember I saw a post that you wrote. I mean, because it's a very real fear of mine. Like, I have one baby and like I'm I'm not even pregnant and I am anxious about anticipating number two and that transition I remember seeing a post that you wrote where you had like practical tips of things to do to ease the transition can you just talk us through what some of those were what you did and if any of them helped yeah I'm just, I can't, like, do you know, it's so not a problem now that it's just so, I think I wrote that, but I I gathered all of the information before I had number two. So that was me, like, in my control mode, trying to glean from every single friend how to do this right. And, um, like, I honestly, like, what I would say now, <laughs> because I think there's an obsession for, like, lists, how can I make this perfect? But what I would say now is, um, you know, you've, you've got to put yourself first, you know, your, your kids don't, you know, like that whole philosophy around your kids need to be bored. They actually do need independence. And I think there's a lot of, um, 
if you know if you're realizing that you are needing to overcompensate for your children it's because you too much of your identity is in your children and um well that was for me anyway realizing that actually I need to be my own person like I have a friend who has never had mum guilt ever and she is someone who always prioritizes you know and not in a selfish way like she always prioritizes her own hobbies and interests and the kids if you know if anything are kind of burdens <laughs> to her lifestyle you know and and I kind of look at that and go that's so interesting to me that she doesn't get guilt and I honestly think it's you know more than anything it's about not abandoning yourself because you need to, you know, you need to be whole. And <clears throat> I say that, but I, I honestly don't do that well either. You know, like I, I, I'm, that's something I'm telling myself often too. Of, Let my kids be bored. Let them, you know, like cope with transition. Like that's life. You know, it, it's not your job to protect them from the world, <laughs> you know. And it's not like throw them on the streets and let them fend either, you know. Um, but I do think that, that list when I wrote it was out of that fear of that transition. And I don't actually, that's not something that I would even say now, you know what I mean? But it's something I sought. That was information I sought because I thought I needed that. And like there were, you know, there were some practical things of just, um, you know, how to entertain a toddler when you are busy with a baby. Like I think that stuff's more important as opposed to how to make this transition easier for them like, you know, I did the whole present thing, you know, the baby present, like they don't know, you know, like they don't have any clue what's going on. Like the present didn't make any difference. Like mum's in a room and sometimes I had to lock, like shut the door on him because he kept coming in and like jumping all over me or I'm like trying to explain to him that I need to get the baby to sleep. So please just go away for a second because if I get the baby to sleep, then I can play with you. And then at that point I'm playing with him and I'm exhausted. So I honestly just, yeah, I think it it is what it is. And just to kind of put yourself first and prioritize yourself is probably the best thing you could actually do to make that whole thing better. Yeah. No, I think that's awesome advice. I'm definitely taking notes because the thought of going from <laughs> one to two scares the shit out of me to be honest but um yeah because I hear a lot of myself and my personality and the things you've experienced in terms of like that control in me so yeah I I think I would be the sort of person to seek out those practical tips to make the transition easier but I know what you mean Mm. like my mum says says to me still I gave you a present when your when your sister was born and it's like that present does not affect a, our relationship then or B, our relationship now because she still pisses yeah. me right off. And like the present yeah, didn't do yeah, shit yeah. to make the transition no, of having a sibling yeah. easier because they yeah. become a sibling and you you just have to deal with it and adapt, right? Yeah, that yeah, and like, you know, there are there's a reason that sibling dynamics are always laughable because, you know, the middle child's neglected and the youngest is babied and the eldest has got too much responsibility. Like these are just the natural ways of things. Like you can't avoid it. It's just the way it, ha- it happens. Like if you're an only child, you're messed up in some way. Like, you know, I also have my sister who had you know, kids 10 years earlier than me. So she's, you know, she's got such different perspective too, where she can just say, you're going to fuck your kids up in one way or another. Like the fact that you're giving them a sibling is a blessing and the worst thing on the planet. So you can't do anything right, you know. How do you reflect now on being a second time mum compared to the first time? You've written before that Blair 
was easier and I think it sounds like as a baby like her temperament definitely Mm. was but how much do you think that it was that you knew what you were doing and that you were more relaxed and you'd been through it all before so that's what made it easier yeah yeah no so I've had this conversation heaps because um so I think the things that are it gets harder in a different way which you can totally imagine, just capacity-wise and um, having an older one to deal with while you've got a baby. Um, but, yeah, the temperament thing was just 100%. And I know some some mums that have had a harder second baby because the temperament thing. Um, but, yeah, I think in regards to you being more relaxed, definitely you know the temporary, you know that things are temporary, you know that things are normal and that's your biggest fears. Um, but... Also, I think, you know, like I, I, I often think back to the things I used to get frazzled by with, with just one baby and it was like an outing and like, okay, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And, you know, you had the baby bag were completely ready to go. I've gone out with Blair and forgotten nappies, you know, um, and, and not been frazzled if she shat, you know, but that would have been the worst case scenario with just one. And so I think your capacity grows and I think that makes it easier. But like, as I say, there are different things that are harder and that's just completely balancing life with two. And, you know, and also navigating the guilt of having the toddler missing out. And also you also have the guilt that your baby's missing out because they're not getting all the gleaning that you gave to number one. You know, like I got to Blair's first birthday where I realized I haven't really taken her anywhere, you know, by herself, just her and I. Like she'll come to the supermarket with me. But, you know, I used to take Marlo to the ducks and we'd have picnics and all this stuff. And I'm like, I haven't even just stared at you in months. You know, we're just watching your little face. Like I haven't watched you sleeping ever because as soon as you're asleep, I'm out doing something else, you know. So, um, yeah, I think it's just – it. it it was easier for me because of the baby, I think, more than anything, for sure. Just, you know, she was sleeping through on her own and she eventually stopped doing that too. But just like the temperament, like it was just, it was just easier. Yeah. And how was your breastfeeding journey with her this time? Did she have reflux? Nah, she's just perfect. Like just easy. <laughs> like I said, it sounds like I'm completely just comparing down. I can't say the word perfect. Um, yeah, no, it's just it was just super easy. I'm just trying to remember the earlier. Yeah, early days, the first two weeks again were really like painful, but I just remembered like, oh yeah, that just that passes and I'll just persevere. And even now at fourteen months, she still has two breastfeeds like a day and I'm just slowly weaning her off one at a time. But she yeah, she's just never taken to a bottle when I, you know, have introduced it, but I've never forced it. I was just more like, it'd be nice to just be able to go out and go away for a weekend, but I never forced it. If it wasn't natural, I just didn't bother, you know, and that's like, I don't have an issue with formula, obviously, but it was just easier. Like for me now, it's just like easier to breastfeed, not have to worry about bottles or anything. And um, I don't know, I'd, I my goal, because I had stopped feeding Marlo at eight months, I, my goal was to get to a year and so I did persevere like kind of knowing like oh I might introduce a bottle but um it'll be breast milk but then I've just ended up just feeding her even now and um I'm not at the point where I feel like she's too old for it like I know I get comments from some members of the family like god oh, geez she's got teeth you know and it just doesn't phase me like I just think um, you know, like I just know when she'll be ready to drop the feed and she eats more and, you know, so 
Um, but you know, I, I definitely wasn't someone that thought I would be doing this either. <laughs> like I thought, oh yeah, I'll get to a year and then, and then just reassess. But for me, it's just been ease, to be honest. I've just got a few general questions for you as we get to the end of our, what's been quite a long chat. What expectations did you have for yourself as a mother and how was the reality of that potentially different, I guess, either times with the babies? Yeah, I've thought about this with, um, you know, with number one, I think I, I went on maternity leave from a big, good paying job. And for me, it was, I think being, becoming a mother was always my exit plan from working, <laughs> you know? And I think when you're in a full-time job and you dream of being a mum, you're like, that's when I'll, that's when I'll have my holiday. And then it's not a holiday. And then, um, you know, obviously having number two, suddenly it was like, okay, well, this is my forever now and I don't have work and I, but I want work. And I think that's been my, um, weirdest thing. Cause my mum was always a working mum. Um, not like to the point where I think we were at home. I think we were at home with her when we were preschoolers, but, um, but she's always had work and always had her own things. And so I think that was something that I, um, it was it was difficult for me because I thought I would be able to continue working. I didn't actually picture it in exactly what way. But I could never go back to agency life now that I was a mum because it's just not conducive to having children and working that amount of time in an office and, you know, the crazy deadlines and whatnot. Um, there's just no flexibility in some industries and I'm such a believer that there should be because I do know that we are like way more productive than we would ever have been. You know, I used to get to work at like whatever time in the morning, make a coffee, do the rounds, chat to everyone, you know, have three-hour meetings for no reason. Like if I was doing that now, I could do that in 20 hours a week and do, get the same amount of work done, you know. Yeah. But um, no, I think in terms of becoming a mum, I, I, my expectations were that I would – it would be <laughs> an awesome holiday where I could just hang out with kids and not have to work. And the reality is that I want to work in some capacity, you know. So I have started my own business and doing consults like from home over, well, luckily now everyone knows how to use Zoom, so on video chat, which has been awesome. And I did go back to an agency like in between having Marlo and Blair and, um, and that was 20 hours a week and that was full on. Like it was really intense being pregnant and working, which I don't recommend. But yeah, no, I think that was probably my hardest thing is I guess, and I'm still on this journey, but figuring out like how much of motherhood is my identity and how much of work is my identity and what's actually a healthy balance of, you know, what makes me me and not actually needing either of them, but actually going, it's a part of my life and what's the right balance. And I think that's that's probably going to be a lifelong change, right? Because as they get older, they become more independent, you know, into their teens and whatever, and so you can pick up more. And, you know, I do remember my capacity changing dramatically from when Marlo was like one to even when he was two um, in terms of what you could take on elsewhere or, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that would be my answer. Yeah, I completely resonate with that. When you look back on your fourth trimester with Marlo, what was your favorite moment? Like what is that standout day, milestone or time that just fills you with such joy? Uh, it would probably be 
God, I don't know. That's a really tough one. It's all bl- because we spent eight months with him in Auckland. All of that is blurred into one time in this tiny apartment we were in. Um, I, I honestly, I think like the things we used to str- not stress but be concerned about with him. I think now we know him, we realize that was just his personality. And, you know, in hindsight, looking back going, you know, like I used to sing really loud just around the house and he would scream at a high-pitched noise. And so we used to do it for fun, which apparently was cruel according to one troll. But it was always hilarious to us. And now we know him. He's got such sensitive hearing. (laughs) Like he doesn't like if the garbage gobbler's on or whatever or if there's conflicting noises and stuff. Not It's not like an autism like really overwhelmed. Like I shouldn't say that it's like that, but – but just doesn't like it. And so, you know, I just, I think I look back and go, man, I'm glad that we took the moments to laugh at our child because, <laughs> you know, they do grow up and show you more of who they are and, and you realise like, yeah, I've got to enjoy, you've got to enjoy the bits you can, eh? Yeah, totally. And what about when you look back at the newborn stage with Blair, what was your favourite moment then? <laughs> this just shows it's all such a blur, eh? Uh, probably just like doing the first things is like a family, you know, like when you have one kid, you just feel like parents with a kid. But then when you have two, it's like suddenly we're a family and there's all this kind of nostalgia from like the way you grew up and the outings and things. And I think just going out, you know, we went to the train park here where the trains run and the kids go on the trains and the playground and just, you know, Marlo running around, loving it, me pushing the pram with Blair. Like that was just such a special moment that all of us were suddenly a family I think that was really nice that's really beautiful um well I just have one final question for you and I don't know if you know what this is because I don't know if you've listened to any episodes but um I have a theory that the mother we hope to be and strive to be is the exactly the kind of mother that we are even on the days where we kind of question ourselves as a mother and it's really bloody hard, and we think that we're not meeting our own expectations. Mm. So my question for you is, what kind of mother do you hope to be? And then I guess in the same sense, what kind of mother are you? Yeah. That's a re- that's really, really good. Um, okay. Okay, so who I'd hope to be. It's funny because I'm asking myself, what am I? But I'm like, you know, it's natural to be like, I'm not, I'm not that – Okay, the mother I hope to be is someone um, that can really engage with my children <clears throat> on their levels. Like, I have to re- I have to keep saying it. Like, the mum I hope to be is that, and I am like, I'm quite a futuristic person, so I think about like how this will also how this will also be when they're teenagers, you know. And I really, really hope that I'll be a mum that can really engage with my kids and really, I guess, understand them and respect their individuality and have, um, you know, an ability to connect with them in that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. That's such a great answer. I love that. Nobody else has said anything like that. What have they said? Oh, they've all been really different. Like, I guess it just depends on who you are as a person as well. Like, you know, all mothers are different, all babies are different. And I think that at the end of the day, the way that we describe our hopes as parents probably looks different and how we get there 
looks different. Mm. But I think in the end, we just want our children to grow up and be happy and be themselves and know that they're loved. And I just think we all articulate it in different ways. And so I just like to hear how how everybody else likes to articulate it. That's true. And that goes to show that like, obviously I've got a big value in like, you know, engaging and feeling like connected. Yeah. Is, and, I, and I think the main, when I think about it, I think about conversation. Like I would, I would just love to always be able to have conversation with my kids. Um, even when they're, you know, adults and have their own kids. I just love, I would love, that would be my goal, that I could always have a good conversation with them about anything. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Motherness. For more empowering interviews like this one, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review so more listeners can discover all that motherness has to offer. We are at motherness.podcast on Instagram and our DMs are always open if you need advice or would like to chat. I'm Sky Ross and you've been listening to Motherness.